Hi, it's Jonah Budd. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. Society's come a long way in shedding stigmas that surround people who live with mental illness, and that includes when it comes to treatment. I speak with the CEO of Schizophrenia Society of Canada about some new funding they've received from the federal government and how it will help develop some interesting new research in treatment. And domestic abuse and even femicide has skyrocketed since the pandemic started over three years ago. I speak with somebody from SAGACY, Domestic Violence Prevention Society, about something called Claire's Law and what it is and how it can help women avoid abusive relationships. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. If you're Canadian, which we all are listening in here, and uh, we're all rooting, I hope, for our Canadian team. So you got the Leafs still in it and Edmonton kind of on the cusp here. We're hoping that uh, they'll pick it up tonight and finish it. If not, they'll go into another another game. And then, of course, the Winnipeg Jets are, are out. So if you're a Jets fan, maybe a little depressed. If you're a Leafs fan, feeling elated. And if you're an Edmonton fan, maybe a bit anxious, right? So that's what this uh, first segment is about. How do you feel about your sporting teams and how they're doing? And if you're, you know, a super fan or just kind of a casual fan, more like me, you know, I like to support any any good competitive sport, anybody who's winning. Um, you know, I kind of like to be part of a, a winning team like most of us. But, you know, really at the end of the day, I'm just good. I'm up for a good sporting event to see te- you know, teams at their best, right? So why are people so passionate and emotionally attached to their sports teams and, and to the and to the competitors, right? So the people, you know, there's people are crazy about um, you know, how they're feeling about, you know, whether the the the, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs win or whether it's a the an Edmonton gonna be Edmonton win. But you know, not just for, for hockey, for for tons of sporting events. You know, in Europe, the soccer fans, they call it football there, soccer fans are are intense. Um, we see it often on the news when there's a reporting of a specifically a specific game um, around uh, you know a, a team that's matched with a in another team where it's highly competitive. Maybe there's a they're adversarial and have a, have had years of of uh, you know this kind of uh, back and forth adversary uh, adversarial approach to winning or losing against each other. But you know it, the, it's the fans that we're really talking about right now that kind of have an emotional attachment, right? A lot of people have an emotional attachment to their sporting event and to their teams. It's an age-old obsession with sport. And more importantly, it's an alliance to certain athletic teams or sometimes specific players. Uh, for example, most sports fans have teams that their families have supported. You know, there's you know, a lot of people in, in, in families that have supported the Leafs or, or Vancouver teams, Edmonton, Edmonton teams, Winnipeg teams, you know, sporting teams from their cities, from cities they used to live in from cities maybe that they went to school at in, you know, where they went to school and, and have an impact on them now, you know, trying to keep their, their college, uh, you know, college support up for the teams that they kind of grew up with feeling of identity. People find an identity with a community of, of fans. Right. And it's been around since the beginning of sports as a popular entertainment, right. Going back to the ancient Greeks and it's grown and grown and grown from there. 
So sports has actually and become an it's accessible due to innovations like real time news and TV, of course, radio, the internet. Um, now having access to real time sports on your phone, uh, or if you're fortunate enough to have a, an eye an eye watch of some sort, some kind of smartwatch, you can watch it on your wrist these days. I saw somebody watching the tail end of the Leafs game a few days ago on his wrist. Pretty small, right? But you know, I, I'm a I'm a golf fan. I, I'm a sporting. You know, I like to watch all sports when they're at their best. But I'm a golf fan, and you know, when Tiger was playing last week, Tiger Woods, who's a golfer, professional golfer, if you haven't heard from him, you know, he was playing last week in the a couple of weeks ago in the Masters, and you know. The fact that he could show up after destroying his leg in a car accident, we won't talk about the fact that he was inebriated or under some kind of influence at the time. Nobody even talks about that anymore. But the fact is I was rooting for him, right? I didn't think he was going to he was going to win. You could see him hobbling along, but I was rooting for the guy. Like I really was I was really keen on the fact that he was there. I was very happy for him that he was there and and seemed to be able to play the first, you know, day or so fairly well and then the Weather got so crappy that, you know, it was difficult for a guy who's, you know, hobbling along at the best of times to deal with wind and cold and rain and play a sport at that level, right? But, you know, there's different kinds of fans. Not everybody is the same kind of fan. Some people can, you know, kind of take their sports, take it or leave it, so to speak. And some people, you know, are really intense. They wear the team colors. Sometimes they paint their face. To look like the you know a team logo. Often you see people painted with the blue and white maple leaf at a, at a, at a Toronto Maple Leaf game, game, and same for for other sporting events with other sporting teams and fans. You know, they people get pretty into it, as they would say, to put it lightly, right? But I talk to people who sometimes get depressed when their teams don't do well. I, I talk to people who are so excited when their teams do well that it's like they just they won themselves. And, and I, I keep thinking to myself, you know, it's great to be a fan, but honestly, you know, we're taught when they talk about we won and we lost, and you know, we could have played better, we should have done this, we should have put in this guy. We, it, it people really identify as being part of the team, almost on the team, right? It's almost like you're on the team with the participation that comes with such high emotion. So there's a fun side, right? They're highly identified fans is what they're called. There's a fun side. Need to belong, be part of a fan group, you know, whether it's a TV show, country singer, you know, you want to, you want to rate, rate, you know, root for your, your favorite singer on those shows where you get, uh, you get bounced off if you don't make it to the next, the next level, right? You have to kind of sing through. So, you know, everyone has a fan that they're rooting for. You know, people are rooting for teams on Survivor for years and years and years. People are just so, you know, fans are so focused on it, right? And then there's a flip side of, of fans that are a little more dysfunctional, right? Like highly identified fans are are those that are are, are more optimistic about their team. They, they, they stand clear in the stadium parking lot, on, uh, you know, that you can see that they're keen on the game. They're feeling good about going into the game. They're excited. And then there's a whole dysfunctional side, as according to this uh, report. There's a whole dysfunctional side of fans that are more likely to be aggressive at a sporting event, shouting at rival fans and insulting the referees and really getting into the game in a nasty kind of way, right? And humans have always sorted themselves into some kind of group, in groups, out groups, right? And police those boundaries with aggression sometimes. And the research suggests that fans who launch verbal or physical attacks 
on rival fans do do so not because they're highly identified, but because of their individual personality characteristics, right? So fans who behave aggressively at sporting events or in online spaces may have narcissistic traits, lower levels of self-esteem, and thus respond with aggression to any perceived slights or downward revisions of their fragile self-concept that comes with a loss. You know, really getting into it in a big way. So that's kind of, I'm trying to figure out if you're that kind of fan. You know, does it really make you kind of out there and you're, you know, really affect your whole day, whether your team wins or loses? Or are you able to enjoy the game for the benefit of enjoying the game? And most of us are just, you know, fans, one team or another. You know, we enjoy the game for the entertainment value. We don't seem to put down other people who root for a team that's not ours. We're not wishing horrible things on the other players so that, you know, someone slips and falls or breaks their ankle. You know, like there's fans out there that really wish bad things on the other side. It's almost like giving them some kind of voodoo X, right? Some kind of, of, uh, of bad karma to see if you can, you know, somehow influence your team to uh, the other side to, to lose so that your favorite team can win. Anyway, we're going to talk about it a little bit more as we get into the show later on in the second hour. Um, so stick with us if you want to continue to have this chat about fans and how we behave, some not so good and some better than others. Are you at your best or perhaps not? You know, if you thought about smoking weed or smoking marijuana, cannabis, whatever you like to call it, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, it's not a big deal if you're eating it, perhaps, maybe you're ingesting it through beverages or edibles and other forms. And, you know, you're thinking it's not such a big deal. And, you know, you're thinking about your, maybe your kid or your neighbor kid or your grandchildren, or, you know, someone in your family that's uh, under the age of, uh, let's say, 19, 20, um, smokes a lot of weed right? Be concerned about the outcome of what that might do to them. Well, that's a real thing to think about. And what I want to talk about here right now is coming out of that song, Psycho Killer with Talking Heads. It's a song that we wanted to share with you because it comes from a time when there was still a lot of stigma attached to people with mental health uh, challenges. And it's now now at a time where people are more open to talk about the, their mental illness and such. And the Schizophrenia um, Association of Canada, Society of Canada, excuse me, um, we have their CEO as our guest here. And what we're going to talk about here is in, in part is that the, they got a, the society uh, got a funding um, some funding of nine hundred seventy eight thousand dollars to study basically cannabis and and it, mental health the effect of cannabis on mental health in specific uh, about uh, schizophrenia and how it might impact schizophrenia and we know that kids young kids um, and with adults but certainly we see it a lot with kids I certainly do in my practice uh, see a lot of kids that end up with some form of um, uh, some form of psychosis around smoking too much marijuana, having consuming too much cannabis. So it's not as easy peasy as everybody makes it out to be. It's and uh, certainly the the marijuana we smoke today isn't at all like it was when we were kids. It's much stronger, much more potent. Uh, but I want you to listen to our guest because really what we're talking about is the effect of marijuana on 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 your on your mental health. Um, and and we're looking at schizophrenia and psychosis around. Um, the effects of, of THC in that way. Uh, but listen to what my guest has to say actually about schizophrenia. Um, so we have a better understanding going into this uh, interview. Schizophrenia is a form of psychosis in which a person has difficulty distinguishing what is real and what is not real. See a person and not an illness because a diagnosis is just 
that. It, it's a diagnosis, it's a label, it's not an identity. And so the more you get to know a person and see their heart, their hopes and dreams, then the less you will see he's schizophrenic, so to speak. And again, we don't use that word. We say people living with schizophrenia. I'm not. There we have it. Dr. Chris Somerville is my guest. Dr. Somerville, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. It's so great to be with you this evening, sir. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be uh, talking with you. Listen, I, I'm very excited when people start talking about studying the effects of marijuana, especially on young people, uh, because, you know, we got into this thing in Canada real quick with recreational, started with medicinal marijuana, then became recreational marijuana. It's everywhere. It's on every corner. There's stores all over the place. It comes in drugs. It, com it comes in drinks, I should say. It comes in, you know, chocolates and candies and in all kinds of, um, you know, this designed uh, uh, methods for, for taking it, distribution methods uh, for ways to consume it. Uh, Dr. Somerville, the study that they're talking about that you've been funded uh, close to a million dollars um, is to study cannabis. Um, and I guess it's, the intent is to what? Teach children young or young people about the effects of marijuana on, on, the, on, on their mental health and specifically the potential for having schizophrenic symptoms? Well, what we're doing and excited to do is, um, as some have, have said, turn over a new leaf on cannabis education. So rather than say, just say no or speak only about the harms or the negative of cannabis, uh, what we do with the funding that we have is uh, we have a scientific advisory team of researchers who have, have done long-term long studies or or studied long-term studies on the use of cannabis and its relationship with health. Now, uh, mental health. Now, tonight we're speaking simply about cannabis and its effect on mental health and relationship. There, I mean, there's other physiological reasons and cardiovascular reasons with uh, seniors and uh, women's health, etc. But um, this this project is trying to change the conversation around how we talk about mental health and and, and the use of, of cannabis. It's it's a 90-minute free online service. Uh, it is developed by youth, uh, for youth. Um, you're speaking to a 70-year-old guy that was born in Birmingham, Alabama, and then moved to Canada in 1985. My brother developed cannabis-induced um, uh, psychosis leading to schizophrenia when he was in, in Vietnam. Uh, back then, uh, I mean, compared to uh, strains and potency today, I mean, we're, we're just like metaverse uh, beyond potency today. But... Yeah. Back then, there was no conversation. You were just told it's wrong, it's evil, don't do it, uh, it's sinful, etc. What we do with this project is allow youth to inform other youth from their lived experience, their use, their recovery, and helping other youth to make an informed decision and, and what all that involves. I understand you still there with us, buddy? Yes, yes, I, I'm, I'm, okay. still, I'm still with you. Okay. You, see, you see, before see before 2018, before the yeah. legalization of cannabis, 90, probably 95 or more percent of the population, including myself to some degree, we didn't know that we had our own endocannabinoid system, endocannabinoid system, which right. is you know part of human development from conception of human life to, to age 25. And then we, we were on this huge learning curve, and I, I did many uh, media interviews, and people are saying, well, why are we just talking about this now? Well, prior to it was illegal, and you didn't talk much about it, but boy, the information that's available today 
just compared uh, to, to 10 and 15 years ago, I mean, uh, we have learned so much uh, about the relationship of mental health and, and cannabis. I mean, people use for stress, uh, for yeah. grief, uh, losses, pain, whether it's physical pain, mental pain. There are cultural reasons. Some people use for spiritual reasons. Uh, I, I think one of uh, the big reasons why people use is it makes you feel good. <laughs> and We're, uh, we're it, talking specifically yeah, about the THC side, right? Yeah, right. Now now, now we go to the THC, and, and that's the one. I mean, there's over 100 chemicals in, in cannabis, but the THC and the CBD are the two you know, that, that most people know about. And the THC, the plant base. It, it just has a negative effect on the developing brain. It can. I, I should use, uh, you know, cautionary language in terms may and can or could. Although I was hallucinating, I thought all my hallucinations were real. I hear quite a few voices, and they can be they can be distressing. A lot of the symptoms I experienced were delusion based, so they were. Um, based on false assumptions about the world or the people around me, and most of them were out of fear and paranoia. Uh, talking to Dr. Chris Somerville. Dr. Somerville, thank you for sticking with us um, and being on the show tonight. Uh, quick question here. Exactly, um, talk to us about schizophrenia briefly uh, and how it manifests in different people. We heard some people talk about their symptoms in that clip, but give us kind of the, the, the simple rundown. Yes, I'll, I'll be glad to do that, uh, hoping that your uh, audience will realize that uh, most people who use cannabis will not develop schizophrenia. Uh, yep. Schizophrenia, though, is uh, psychosis, and so psychosis can be caused by a number of things and associated with other illnesses like Parkinson's disease, epilepsy. Um, in terms of uh, mental health, um, the use of cannabis as a psychoactive, which is probably the most used psychoactive drug in, in North America, if not around the world. So uh, de depending on particular situations, it can cause depression and anxiety in people, even though people do use cannabis for their depression and anxiety. But it, in fact, for many people, can worsen that to the point of full-blown psychosis uh, being developed, which is hallucinations or delusions, difficulty knowing what's real and what's not real. Um, two other things I'd say real quickly is that if you have a mental illness, uh, you're about five to seven times more likely to, 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 to develop um, psychosis um, if you use cannabis. And that's just fact. So uh, people that are negative function. Go, yeah, go so ahead. people that are so people that are diagnosed with some form of uh, of mental illness or mental challenge, yeah. um, just before they even try uh, cannabis, should know that it's not going to likely help them. It might, in fact, worsen their their symptoms. Is that is that what I've taken away from this? Well, you don't need a diagnosis because most people who live with mental health problems and struggles or mental illnesses don't have a formal diagnosis. Believe it or not. But uh, if you do have a languishing mental health, a history of mental health problems in the family in terms of coping and stress management, or if there's a history of mental illness like depression, bipolar disorder, or schizophrenia, uh, then you're just increasing your chances or risk. So what this website is, is about harm reduction. Know, know all yeah. you can about um, cannabis. Um, learn from youth with lived experience. We have 25 videos on this website. Understand the facts about cannabis use. It's not benign. I mean, cannabis is not benign. I mean, you can drink too much coffee. You, you, you can overdose on a lot of things um, that perhaps in moderation are, are not going to be, you know, too, too bad for you. But, you know, we just want to approach the 
this concept with the knowledge that there is harm, but we're not telling people to use, but recognize potential consequences. And so there is a link between cannabis use and schizophrenia. Uh, we have seen an increase in cannabis use since legalization. Well, that's understandable. And we've also yeah. seen an increase in psychosis. We've also seen a, an increase in schizophrenia. But schizophrenia is multiple illnesses, and there's not just one exact cause. Now, cannabis, cannabis may be what is the straw that breaks the camel's back, to, to use that phrase. So mental health problems, trauma, uh, you're already um, trying to deal with, with life and stress like the pandemic. And, you know, people will turn to stimulants or, or psychoactive drugs to deal with what I call emotional pain, uh, problems in life, uh, or just you know, recreational. I mean, some people know how to use in moderation. The, the worst thing would be the uh, here are three factors. The person that ought to be really be mindful about all of this is the younger you are, that's not good. Uh, the higher the potency, that's a negative. And your, your use pattern, um, you look at all of those things, and people can develop ca- cannabis use disorder, which means an addiction. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and so. Um, I just encourage people to go to Cannabis and Mental Health and look at this unbelievably dynamic uh, course we've designed uh, by youth who have lived experience of mental well-being and mental illness and use of cannabis and how they would guide other people. So we want school teachers and parents and faith leaders um, to learn how to have a discussion. It's, it's, not a, it's no longer, you know, it never was about just say no. Uh, yeah. We're all inquisitive. I mean, that's part of the human spirit. And sometimes, you know, uh, more knowledge and a supportive friend that, that helps us through trials and struggles of life. Um, hopefully there's, 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 there's less mental health problems and mental illness as, resu- as a result of using cannabis and other psychoactive drugs. Uh, what are the current ways that um, you're, you know, that uh, we're treating schizophrenia today? Um, so someone who mm-hmm. is, uh, yeah. you know, that is finding that they have some some of these yeah. symptoms, is there is there a successful treatment or we just oh, yeah. manage it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, if you're going to have schizophrenia, this is the best day to have it. Now, people say, "What in the world are you talking about, Chris?" Well, it's the best day because we know more than we've ever known. And we've learned what was wrong. Uh, that's good science when we learn, you know, concepts and, and presuppositions that we thought were right but now have been proven wrong. So the earlier you intervene, the less likely you are to go on to develop full-blown schizophrenia. But most people, you know, won't get help because they don't want anybody to think they're crazy, uh, a nut bar yeah. or a lunatic. Yeah. And just fear and, and the self-stigma, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not mental. I'm not mental, you know. Uh, but the earlier you intervene, the less likely it'll develop the full-blown schizophrenia. But today, the treatment is a combination of medication along with uh, psychological supports, dealing with trauma. I think most people with mental uh, uh, schizophrenia have, have, do have some unresolved trauma, which is a stressor, which can create relapse. Uh, peer support, uh, you know, a- actual people. You, you know, I, I was um, uh, 12 days in a mental health hospital uh, three years ago. And, you know, I wish there had been a peer support worker there. And that is someone to just come along and say, Chris, how are you doing? And not see me as a label. 
and yeah. talk with me about my hopes and dreams. Um, it's just a weird thing, you know, when you go into a psychiatric hospital, oftentimes it's just, you're just seen as a diagnosis and, and, and not a human being. And so it says, yeah, you said something here. interesting out of the gate about not calling people, telling people they have schizophrenia or schizophrenics, but that they yeah, have yeah, schizophrenia, yeah. if I'm quoting you correctly. Well, r- r- right, right. I mean, it's such a negative word. And, you know, most people think that means split personality. And we refer to politicians and others as being schizophrenic. But yeah. it is not multiple personality disorder. Um, and a diagnosis is, is based upon a psychiatric evaluation, looking at cluster of symptoms. And then you have this big book called the, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is all about observations. And you give what you observe a label. So the person has depression. They have bipolar. So when people come to see me, you know, I find a way when they say, hey, I'm a schizophrenic. And they say, what, what, what about you're a person? who is living with or dealing with schizophrenia because schizophrenia is just a label. It's not your identity. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why people do use um, um, psychoactive drugs is a search for identity. Um, You know, back when I was young, you know, the song, what's it all about, Alfie? And is that all there is to life? And so, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be as complex, and it doesn't have to be a taboo subject. And there's just so much information out there to help people make informed decision-making. You know, understand yourself. Uh, why do you use? Um, how often do you use? Uh, harm reduction in terms of don't use and drive. Uh, right. there's, there's so many things around it in terms of common sense and encouragement. Um, and if we don't create... Uh, compassionate ways of communicating with our kids and We're with our colleagues, uh, th- yeah. then they're just going to walk. Or, they're just going to walk away. I mean, a Health Canada logo is probably yeah. the worst thing anybody can see. I say, oh well, that's Health Canada. You know, they're supposed yeah. to tell you no. You know, speaking of being connected, um, I got to tell you, I had the experience this week, uh, last Sunday, uh, my uh, father, uh, who is uh, in his late 90s, uh, who still drives and works at a uh, in a uh, volunteer capacity six days a week. Uh, he wears a suit and tie when he goes to work. He's very well-groomed, takes care of himself most of the time. We do provide, we help him with some support from some caregivers, uh, but basically pretty independent guy for the most part and isn't so forthcoming about the stuff that bothers him, right? He just doesn't want to you know, trouble anybody. He's just not that kind of guy. He doesn't really talk about his aches and pains. Well, it turns out that he wasn't doing so well last weekend, hadn't eaten for a couple of days, was having stuff come out of him that he shouldn't without getting into gross detail. But um, clearly when my, uh, we found out uh, that he needed, uh, that he wasn't doing well, uh, he needed at the stage he was at, he needed to go to hospital. Now, I got to tell you, I've had, you know, both my parents, when my mother was alive, both my parents had had, have had experiences in the hospital, in and out of the hospital. I have, my wife has. Uh, We've been pretty fortunate, though, to have excellent care. Uh, And, you know, I got to tell you, I haven't really been in a hospital setting since really the pandemic uh, began, because when my mom was sick during the pandemic, of course, we couldn't be there with her. Anyway, make a long story a little bit shorter. Uh, I 
we went to a hospital. So we got there on Monday around 1230 in the afternoon, uh, Toronto time. And we didn't see a doctor until close to six o'clock, 630. And my wife and I were both there together. Um, we weren't able to get a caregiver to there fast enough to, to support us. Um, I've got issues with my legs and with walking, so it's difficult to walk through a hospital. I have to bring my scooter with me. And, you know, so we both need to be there to help my dad for whatever reason. Uh, but sitting in the, in, in the emergency room um, was a nightmare. So the way to avoid, you know, the way to, to, to get around the, the issues with, you know, healthcare in this country is just don't get sick. Because I got to tell you, the nurses, the doctors, the, the help that's in the hospitals uh, really go out of their way to do a great job for the most part. But they're very limited. And they're limited by the number of bodies that are available in terms of help. Uh, there was a period of time when my dad needed to get a test. We couldn't get him to the test um, in a timely fashion because they couldn't find uh, they couldn't find an orderly someone to to actually move him uh, from his uh, where he was to where the tests take place. And the whole experience really kind of you know got to me uh, because we're all trapped. And we're trapped in, in, in a system that's very broken, and it's broken because the politicians in our lives are not making the best choices, I don't think, in, in keeping in, in mind what is good practice for patient care and what's a reasonable time to wait for patient care and what systems are available, what, what, you know, what, what rooms are available, what, you know, or their doctors are available. So the timing of a lot of the planning uh, it has a lot to do with who's available and it's, it's, it's dollars and cents. At some point, a nurse can only put in so much time. And then, and then he or she, they need to go home and rest up so they can come back and do it again. Same with doctors, same with anyone who's working in uh, the hospital system. So this isn't about, you know, the people working there because I think they're busting their butts to do a great job and to provide the best quality of care, <coughs> excuse me, that they can. But they're limited too, right? They're limited by what's available, what resources are available. So I figured what we could do is understand the whole concept of going into emerge and what's involved. So emergency happens at all hours of the day and night, right? So a hospital emergency department is open 24 hours a day, and you know they're open seven days a week. It's just the way it is. So to understand it, that's a 24-7 operation. And there's times of day that people say are better to go. Sometimes it's better to go in the middle of the night. Sometimes it's better to go first thing in the morning when the shifts are changing. There's better times of day, but some are better. Than so picking the time of day, if you have the option, may be a good idea. If you can find a time of day that's a little more keeping with, uh, uh, you know, a slower, a slower emerge run. So it seems to be middle of the day is not great. We got there at 1230 in the afternoon. The place was packed and there's a board, an electronic board up on a TV that tells you how long it's going to be before you're going to be seen by a doctor or how long the average patient's going to have to wait. And when you see five, six hours, you know, the 83% of the patients are going to be seen that there's 37 people ahead of you. It doesn't make the experience any better. But anyway, if you're there, you got to understand why am I waiting, right? So why are you waiting? So I found out that even though my father's in his late nineties and he has some, some medical issues, he's for the most part in great health. Thank, thankfully he's in great health great health. But, you know, there are people, there were people coming and going. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, my father has stuff coming out of him that he shouldn't. And 
it's coming from places that it shouldn't. And he's 90 something years old, way up in his nineties um, years, years old. And uh, we just don't use the number to bring him any bad luck. Right. So we're just 90 something years old. And you know, why is, why aren't they taking him? <laughs> like he's an old guy who's got stuff going on and we had to bring him into emerge. And, you know, certainly he should be a priority one would think. And as I'm sitting there hours into this thing, I'm thinking there's got to be a better way, right? Like I've got to be able to find a better way. So I went to the office of the president and CEO of the hospital we were in, see if they could help. They were very kind. They introduced me to somebody in a department called, uh, 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 what is it, patient uh, experience, the department at this hospital. It's one of the major hospitals in Toronto called the patient's experience, the patient experience department. And they're there to advocate for you and to help you uh, along the way, get through the system and get the tests done that you need and so on and so forth. Um, they also, you should understand that if you're going to a hospital, have somebody go with you. Trying to show, I see people have showed up by themselves and I just felt terrible for them because you really do need someone to advocate for you. You really do need someone that can, while you're waiting for something and you can't get up from the chair because you're in pain or whatever, something, you know, you can't get up to move around for whatever reason. And that's probably one of the reasons you're in the hospital. You need someone to advocate for you. But in the meantime, this patient um, experience department. So uh, they were very helpful. They were, you know, they were quite polite. They, you know, they were kind and, and all that stuff, but they can't do much, right? So you have to understand that ambulance patients may be arriving that they may need to be sooner, be seen sooner than the person you're with. Uh, the doctor and nurse may be waiting for some test results if you're fortunate enough to get test results. So the first thing you do is you get you get uh, you get triaged, right? You go in and they ask you what's up. They take your information. They put you on some kind of list in terms of priorities based on how you present. And then you do a registration period. During that registration period, you're, you uh, you know you sign up. You give them all your necessary information and so on. Um, and then you get into a queue. And that queue um, will then uh, determine when you're going to be in that in that area. So it's recommended that you don't eat or drink anything before you speak to a triage nurse because it could affect the treatment or the kind of tests you might need. So if you're not feeling great, if it's something specifically, um, you know, inside your belly or something like that, you want to be really clear about not having anything to eat or drink because you never know the test that you might have to take may require you to have nothing in your system. And the, the triage nurse should tell her all about your medications and vitamins and everything that you're on. And then you're, you know, then you're, you're in front of, uh, then you're getting into a queue to go into a treatment area right? That treatment area could be, uh, in, in these days, it's hallways, people in, in, on stretchers and in, in wheelchairs and such, sitting in hallways. And, and, you know, not that they're not being attended to, but there's just no space. You know, at one point I asked a nurse, is there not some place that my father could lie down? Is there a bed that he could use to lie down while we're waiting? Because he was sitting in this horrible, you know, wheelchair thing uh, that they provided at the hospital for, I don't know, hours. And she said, you know, Mr. Bud, I'd be glad to, to help you, but I'd have to put him on top of somebody because just, we just don't have a bed no matter what, right? So then you got to get into the treatment area and you're there for, you know, several, we waited in the treatment area for a couple hours. Then we were seen by um, a nurse practitioner, helped him get, get himself kind of sorted out a little bit. Then the doctor came in, we had to have a doctor's exam. You know, that took a, another hour or two. But I'm telling you something, that the system is not designed for rapid response. So go where you can, go to whatever hospital you feel most comfortable with, but recognize that there these people that work there are highly uh, overworked and I believe for the most part underpaid. Uh, that's another discussion, but um, you know, they're doing their best to be at their best, 
but they're limited to what's available and what, what money can buy and, you know, more people on staff, not double shifting and sometimes triple shifting, uh, just not a good thing, right? So if you're sick, try to take care of yourself at home, see a doctor virtually, but if you have to go to hospital, be prepared to be there for some time, bring something to read, something to drink uh, for those that are coming as guests or as, as not as guests, but as uh, caregivers, uh, make sure you're prepared to sit for some period of time. you heard the the tail end of the first segment i was talking about being in hospital and being in hospital with my dad um for the last week or so he's still there uh and i wanted to make it very clear very clear that uh the issue that i have is with a system that's broken and not with the staff and the people that work in it because i got to tell you these these the, the people that i i inter- interacted with in the in the hospital whether it was the actual medical staff or support staff um you know everybody from the people bringing food to uh those that are providing the care that's you know that that my dad needed uh they're all first class and you know they're all living with the same restrictions that we're living with. And that is, you know, uh, overworked, underpaid, that whole thing. Right. So um, just want to make sure everybody's very clear that I don't have a beef with the staff, I have a beef with the system and uh, <clears throat> somehow, some way we're getting through it, but uh, it's a real challenge. So if you end up in a merge, just make sure you're not alone and be prepared to spend some time there. Uh, so have some stuff to read or listen to and uh, snacks for those that are able to eat. If it's, uh, you know, you go in with a, something wrong with your ankle or something like that, you don't need to worry about whether you're eating or not. But if you've got a tummy ache or something, you want to be careful uh, not to eat anything because it might mess with the um, the type of test that they're going to require you to take. And uh, then you have to come, you know, come back or wait longer or, you know, something like that. Anyway, the trick is just don't get it. Don't just don't get sick. Or don't get sick enough that you need to be in a hospital. Okay, I want to get back to our um, our weekly series. Uh, this uh, we've had a series for the last couple of weeks uh, about making kids champions, making your children great, uh, helping them be the best that they can be. And we, we went through teaching and things and and stuff that we can that we can uh, learn from in terms of you know teach things that we teach them, things that we give them. Um, there's a whole process in in uh, in learning uh, about your children or about the children you're interacting with or working with. There's a whole series of things you can do to help them be at their best and for you to understand who they are, which is a really big part of it. It's a big, big part of this is understanding who your children are. And in order to do that, you need to know things about them. You know, there's lots of parents that I talk to in the course of my my private practice work. And, you know, we'll be talking about their the teenager that they want me to see either as a coach or as a therapist, depending on what the, the kid needs at that particular time in their life. Like, you know, we do both. Right. And, you know, it's we, we I ask them questions. And often, the you know, if, the, if, the, if it's the mom and the dad together, you know, one or the other parent may seem to be more on top of it than the other. It seems to be typical, frankly, that um, I see, you know, 90% of moms seem to be no, more knowledgeable about their, their kids that I see than, their, than the dads in terms of, you know, what they like to do, who their friends are, where they go, what they, you know, what, what games they play, uh, what's their favorite food, things like some things that you would think are, are fairly simple. Um, but, you know, we have to understand our children to be able to teach them and model for them and help them be the best that they can be. So know who their teachers are. 
understand who their teachers are. Look forward to the parent-teacher interview experiences that you get to have in the school system. Learn about their teachers. Learn about what the te- what's important to their teachers. Understand the impact that these teachers are going to have on their kids. I know everyone's out there. They're all freaked out about the kind of kids your kids hang around with. But be in- I'd be interested in the adults that they have in their life, maybe even more so, right? So the kids in their life will have certain kinds of peer influences, but the adults in their life potentially could have very positive influences or in some cases, very negative influence. So you want to know who their teachers are. You want to know what the what the principles of the teachers, uh, their personal principles, what they stand for, their moral code, that kind of stuff. If you can get that out in a conversation, you're way ahead of the game. So understand who their teachers are so you know what kind of, of uh, balance to provide when the children are with you. So either to tag along with what the teachers are teaching them, or in some cases, if you're not comfortable with some of the conversations that the teachers are having with your kids, you may have to help mitigate that, sort that out, kind of explain to them, yeah, you know, your teacher, you know, I can understand your teacher coming from here, but this is what we think. These these are our family values. So know who their teachers are, know who their coaches are. Very important. You know, equally as important that, that the time that they spend with their teachers, they spend with their coaches. Coaches seem to have a different kind of relationship than a teacher does with a young person or an adult, too, for that matter. Right. So coaches seem to have a more uh, they seem to get to more of the personality side of the of the young people more than the teachers have time for so if you're coaching a kid two or three times a week, if your kid's in some kind of of, uh, of sport uh, sporting event, or or perhaps they have uh, uh, they they're into dance or something, you know, some other form of 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 coaching, dramatic coaching, coaching in you know math or something like you know, there's all kinds of of math uh, teams and stuff, ac- academic teams that require coaches. So understand who their coaches are, pretty similar to what we're talking about with teachers. Know their values, know what they're made of, know the kind of people they are, the kind of language they use, how they talk to their kids, to your kids. Do they make your kids feel good about themselves or make them feel bad about themselves? Very important. We touched on it a little bit earlier, knowing who their friends are. It's so critical. If you get a chance to drive your kids somewhere and take their buddies with them, that's a great plan. Let's just And just shut up. Just don't talk. Just listen to what the kids are talking about. Just pay attention to what they're talking about. Don't ask questions. Don't try to be cool and hip and jump in it and like, yeah, I know what they're talking about. I know that band. I know that, right? Like, just let them talk. Just be a cab driver. Be a bus driver. Just do your job. Getting to and from and keep your mouth shut and listen. Because these are priceless conversations that you're going to be able to keep in the back of your mind so you know how they respond to their friends, whether you're whether the you're the kids that you're coaching or the kids that are in your life that you're trying to model to become uh, the best that they can be, whether they're, you know, followers or leaders, whether they're following in the conversation or leading the conversation. You need to understand that and know it well. Also need to understand your the young person's medical history so that you know what your limitations are in terms of what you're able to push them to do if if that's your job if that's the kind of parenting that you're trying to provide is to you know some kind of motivational um, uh, modeling or some form of of um, you know being their cheerleader uh, team so to speak but you want to know what their medical history is so that you have some limitations there's limitations that you work with in those limitations knowing what your kids' schedules are. 
very important to know what they do every day, what their schedule is. They got to start school early in the morning, late in the day, when they have breaks during the day. You know, most kids today in school have uh, have times uh, times out. You know, periods that they don't have to, you know, actually be in class. So it's kind of a they call it a spare. I think they still call it a spare, uh, which is a spare period throughout the day where they're really not obligated to do anything or be in the class. That's a great time to be studying, right? Great time to be catching up on homework. Great time for you to be able to say, hey, listen, you know, if you got that extra hour at school or 40 minutes in, in, in one of your classes, you know, take advantage of that time. So go go see a teacher, go pick up some extra work or go go in the library and go do some work or go take some time to just chill and, and, and relax outside if the weather is nice. Whatever your kid needs, it's important to guide them uh, what's consistent with what their schedule will allow. And I think we're going to leave it on this one tonight. But knowing what your kids' dreams are, what interests them, what really turns them on, what's their dream, what's their ideal, what are they looking to be when they grow up, so to speak, right? What, what, do, they, what do they want to be when they get older? Where do they want to go to school? What kind of school do they want to attend? What is it that they're trying to learn? All of these kinds of things are very important to understand. So in order to help somebody be at their best, you really need to know them intimately. And just because there are kids, or there are neighbor, or there are, are, are nephews or grandchildren or whatever they're in some form they're they're related to us so that we have a, a place in their life this way. It's really important to know these things so that you can provide the proper guidance and not just take it for granted. A lot of people try to provide guidance to kids based on what they didn't have when they were kids. And that's not necessarily the best way to get the best out of the young people in your life. So, um, yeah, this is uh, things that you need to do. You need to understand. You need to learn. You need to be aware. And uh, it's work, like having children and raising good kids, healthy kids. It's real work. So uh, put in the time. It's well worth it. You know, there's uh, a new law in, in um, that we're looking at here in uh, Canada. It's called Claire's Law. And what it basically does is it allows people that are in relationships to uh, perhaps before they get heavily involved in the relationship to find out if the person they're with has a history of domestic violence. And this is designed to uh, to help people. So in Alberta, residents can apply to find out the potential risk posed by their current or former partner if they have a documented history of abuse through what's called the Disclosure to Protect Against Domestic Violence Act, also known as Claire's Law. And the, the idea is that you can, you can find out, um, receive social support as well, but the, the support alongside care of friends and family and colleagues can help you take a step towards a healthier, safer life. So if you're, you know, you're concerned about feeling safe in your relationship, uh, this law will help those that are feeling threatened and give them an opportunity, I believe, to, to get some information ahead of time. So something we need to keep in mind uh, in Ontario in particular, if you live in Ontario, um, we're looking at that for the second time in three years, <clears throat> developing some form of, of, of the law. Um, Claire's Law has been proven popular with legislators and a number of jurisdictions have already enacted uh, the same similar or similar legislation in Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba, Newfoundland, and Labrador. And um, it came out of a coroner's inquest in Ontario as well that was recommended that uh, they adapt this uh, same law as well. Uh, you know, it's what we're talking about here is uh, protecting yourself from the potential of being in a relationship with somebody who's abusive. You know, I had a I had a client not long ago, 
actually a patient not long ago who, uh, you know, was in a relationship with someone. They decided to move in together. Everything was wonderful until they actually got into the same facility. And then um, everything kind of broke down. And um, this person was asserting something called coercive control. Um, it was a bit violent in their words and in their actions. Um, and it was a little late when <clears throat> my, my, my person had to find her way out of the situation. Uh, listen to um, what Carrie McManus, she's our guest this evening, uh, what, uh, what Carrie talks about in terms of coercive control and how common it is in a relationship. Have a listen. Do you know what coercive control is? It can look like your partner monitoring your location, preventing you from seeing friends or family, really having any sort of control over top of you, making you feel fearful or afraid within your relationship. Talking to Carrie McManus, our guest this evening. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, you know, you um, you are the director of innovation and programs at uh, uh, Sagacy, which is an organization designed to support um, women uh, and understanding that the break breakdown of what the Claire's Law is all about and so on. But why why in particular is it called Claire's Law? Is this after somebody, or give us an idea where this law comes from? Yeah, so the law originated in uh, the UK, and it is named after uh, someone named Claire Wood, who was uh, a victim of domestic homicide at the hands of a partner that uh, post the homicide and doing an, uh, a coroner's inquest, uh, it came out that he had quite an extensive history of violence and abuse uh, against former partners. And Claire's family really advocated for a change to be made so that that information could be made available because they felt that if that information had been available to their uh, daughter, that that might have made a difference in her, um, you know, feelings about being in the relationship and how that played out. So is the intent that there would be, I mean, similar, I don't know if, if, if everyone out there is aware, but there's a sex offenders list uh, that um, I believe is not publicly available, but available through through law enforcement. How would someone access information about, you know, their their potential mate or their partner to find out if they have a history of, of uh, poor behavior, both male or female, depends on, on who you're with at the time and what's going on, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the mechanisms for accessing information are going to be different in each of the jurisdictions in Canada that have Claire's Law. Because Claire's Law is actually a provincial legislation, um, it means that everybody enacts it slightly differently. I know in Saskatchewan, there's a in-person requirement when filling out applications, but you do that with police or RCMP. In Alberta, it's been made uh, as an online application. So you can go to the website and fill out an application for yourself or as a third party uh, at any point in time when you're looking for information. The other jurisdictions that you talked about, Manitoba, um, Newfoundland, uh, have started talking about it, but no formal Claire's law has been actually implemented yet in those jurisdictions, so I'm not sure exactly gotcha. how people will be able to get that information. So you're dating someone and you get the impression perhaps that they might be violent, so you check them out, or is this something you kind of do out of the gate and say, you know, I like this person, I want to find out if they're on any kind of watch list, or kind of give me an idea how this is just somebody you check off on a box, or like what, <laughs> what gives us the ability to find out about somebody's history? 
Yeah, so it's not designed to check out someone that you newly started dating. It's not designed to take the names of the people in the dating apps that you're chatting with and put them through an application and say, let me get this background information. That's not what it's for. What it's for is if you're in that relationship. You might have been in that relationship for a couple of weeks. You might be for a couple of months. You might have been for a couple of years. And if you feel like you're just not sure, Something isn't 100% correct. You feel a little um, fear. You feel a little off in the relationship and you're looking for more information. Or part of what Alberta has done in, in its implementation is created the option for third-party applicants. And so that could mean that a friend or a family member could say, hey, you know what, Carrie, I'm not 100% sure about this. And I think it would be good to get some more information. And so it's really designed in those relationships where something already exists and not as a precursor to say, let me do a background check on this person so I can decide whether I want to be in a relationship or not. I'm talking with Carrie McManus, the Director of Innovation and Programs at Sagacy. Uh, it's an organization that helps women, um, I, I guess, people, just women, Carrie, or anyone? Anyone. Is this, uh, is anyone this impacted by domestic abuse. Got you. So um, interesting question for you. What percentage is male and what percentage, like in a typical relationship, what percentage is male and what, what percentage are female? Like how many, how many males are looking to find out if uh, they're, you know, they're with someone who's got, you know, aggressive or potential violent behavior, or is it pretty much mostly a femicide kind of thing? So I can't answer that. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. That's uh, information that the, the government would have, but I don't have that right in front of me. What I will say is that when we um, think about something like Claire's Law and when we think about and we talk about issues like domestic abuse and course of control, we are often talking about experiences of uh, females who are being victimized. Um, but I think it's really important that we always make sure that we are leaving space for the stories of non-female identified victims, whether those are trans, non-binary individuals or male individuals. Because when we just talk about it from a female perspective, we leave out the rest of those stories. And we might want to, we might leave uh, male identified individuals feeling like Claire's Law isn't for them to access. And so it is for everybody to be able to access. We want everybody to be able to utilize it if they are having feelings of being unsure about the safety in their relationship. What to do when you're in a relationship with somebody and you fear that they you know, may in fact be, be violent. So uh, my guest this evening is uh, uh, an expert on this uh, st this subject in particular. Her name is Carrie McManus. She's the Director of Innovation and Programs at Sagacy, uh, an organization that helps women deal with these uh, these types of, of situations. Um, I need to ask you, though, Carrie, coming out of the out of uh, break here, um, give me an idea. I'm trying to understand how this works. So all of a, I know, a friend, let's say I have a friend who's in a relationship. I believe the relationship is potentially toxic for one of them or both of them. There's perhaps some violence involved. Um, and then what? Tell me how this law then would help me help them um, if that's even the way this is supposed to work. Yeah, absolutely. So as a third party, you can fill out an application for somebody for Claire's Law within Alberta. Uh, so everything I'm talking about is in the, the, the Albertan context. You have to have consent of the person that you're asking for information on behalf of. So they have to ultimately say, yes, I want to have this information. 
within Alberta, the way that the system works is there's essentially two pieces of work that happen at the same time. So the first piece is that justice piece where it's going to go into their system. They're going to do their, you know, sort of computer magic. They're going to pull out that information and they're going to uh, assess what information is available, what level of disclosure they're going to give, and then police are going to engage with the disclosure to that individual if there is information to share. The other thing that happens is the social service response. So when you fill out that application, you have the option of saying, yes, I would like to be connected to services within my community. And I think that this is, for me, the part that feels really important because we know that if you have something that you're thinking, I'm not exactly sure if this is okay or not. I'm not sure if I feel safe. I'm not sure I might be a little bit fearful. While that information that comes from justice is going to be really valuable to you, we want to make sure that you get connected to supports and services right away so that we as those supports across the province can start helping you to safety plan, to figure out what's going on, what is it that you need, and how can we help to support within that healing journey for you. And so within the social service response, those are going to come to to, uh, say just, and we're going to send those out across the province. And you would get contacted by somebody within 72 hours of filling out the application. So it's real quick to be able to get connected to support. Okay, so it's kind of like a, a like an alert button, right? That kind of uh, all of a sudden where social services are going to suddenly start to understand that there's someone who's potentially at risk. So this is obviously a step that someone is taking before uh, leaving the relationship. Um, is that fair to say? It could be that they've left. It could be actually that they're still in the relationship. So relationships ebb and flow. They're, they're not linear uh, often. And so we, the, the, the premise of Claire's lies that it could be information for a past partner, um, but somebody maybe that you have kids with, that you still have interactions with, something that is happening that is allowing you to say, you know what, I need this, this information. That's the person who's being, um, I'm going to ter- use the term investigated, probably the wrong term. The person who's being looked into, are they aware that their partner's looking into them or that someone's looking into them? They are not aware that, that, that anyone is looking into them. No. And the information that's given to them, it was, um, uh, we worked really hard uh, with, in, you know, in collaboration with uh, the, the government and other social service agencies across Alberta to, to um, help to support to figure out what's the right level of information to be able to give to people and what is it that somebody needs in that disclosure in order still to make decisions about safety while still respecting, you know, privacy legislation and making sure that everything sort of falls within that uh, and not sharing information uh, just openly to anyone uh, uh, across the across the province. So am I to am I am I to walk away thinking that what the type of information that someone might get would be you know they've had a previous experience with the law or they've been uh, they've been someone's you know inquired about them like <clears throat> what type of information would one get uh, if the application is successful and they're in fact going to get the um, the results that they're looking for. So the, the type of information, again, is going to change jurisdictionally depending on, on where you are in Canada um, and what each of those sort of jurisdictions have, have worked out um, within that. What I will say is that the information when it comes, um, there is a system of support built around that. So working with police to ensure that whatever information they're giving, because um, getting information or 
feeling like you're, you're fearful and not getting information can actually be just as equally hard or upsetting mm-hmm. to an individual. And so we've, um, the, the programs are designed to be able to support people to say, here, here's a disclosure, here's information, and that might be hard. Or, you know what, we don't have information, we don't have a history, and that might still be hard because the thing that it caused you to want to make this application still exists. And so let's make sure we get you connected to support. Tell us a little bit about your organization and, and how they work in this process. Absolutely. So Sagest is an organization that has been working for, for many, many years to try to support individuals who are impacted by domestic abuse, as well as really looking at how do we eradicate this issue from happening uh, so that we're no longer seeing the, the numbers in, in the way that we are across our communities. Uh, we're involved with the, the Claire's Law response within Alberta as the social service network response provider. And so what that means is we have put together a network of supports and services from across the province in different jurisdictional areas, supporting different types of target groups or communities or populations. And what, uh, when an application comes in and they're asking for social services, that comes to us. We have a look at who, uh, what their requests are, what they're looking for, where they are, and then we make sure that that applicant gets connected to the right agency across Alberta to be able to be provided with support. We also train uh, service providers across Alberta to make sure that all service providers, whether they work in domestic abuse or something else, know how to access Claire's Law for themselves and how to be a part of the network if they're interested. You pronounce it Sages, correct? Yeah. How do you pronounce your organization? Okay, my my producer has me calling it Sages. Yeah, they have me calling it Sages. (laughs) So (laughs) I'll go with your pronunciation, Sages. I am talking with with Carrie McManus, and uh, she's uh, the Director of Innovation and Programs at Sages, which is a company that does this kind of work. Um, I, I need to ask you, would we do a better job, if we did a better job of educating young people, uh, in the early stages, you know, 12, 14, 13, 14, 15, you think we could get ahead of some of this if they understood some of the downfalls of relationships as they got older? Absolutely. I was uh, actually just at a conference presentation yesterday talking about course of control and talking about how, you know, when I was a kid, we talked about if uh, a boy pushed you on the playground, that meant he liked you, liked you. And I think we've realized that we need to stop doing that but we haven't realized that we need to start talking about, you know, you don't have to share your location with somebody all the time. They don't always need to know where you are. And you actually don't need to share your phone passwords with somebody. You get to have things that are private. This new way of living in our world, we need to educate around what does that mean? Uh, how do we show up safely within that? Uh, and, then, and then hopefully create opportunities for people to have safety in, in their relationships as they grow.